The scripture reading for this morning is James 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of the Lord. Well, welcome to the Painted Door. My name is Mark. If you are new, it is good to have you with us. It is, as you have probably noticed, a family Sunday. It's a family Sunday for a few different reasons. I'm sure you already did notice that one of those reasons, the first of those reasons, is that we have the little ones here with us in the main sanctuary. Uh, Very grateful to have you little ones that are normally in your children's rooms here in this room with us. We do this periodically not only to give our children's volunteers a rest from teaching in the rooms, but also to include our children into our family of worship, to ensure that they're given a place of honor uh, and a place of life and blessing among us. They are dear members of our church family, not to be forgotten. We want to highlight that in our own hearts and in their little hearts also. It's also a family Sunday today because, as has been mentioned, we have many family members visiting us this morning, and they are visiting us to participate with us in what is the third reason that this is a family Sunday, namely baptism and baby dedications. Okay, your favorite, all of your favorite, I'm sure. So we have a lot of family matters to get to this morning, which means I am going to try to be brief, and we will see whether I succeed. The parents will appreciate, no doubt, if I'm able to be brief. I really just have one main thing to say this morning, so that should help me in my brevity. But I want to start with a question as we get into that. It's a simple question that you all could probably answer in a word. How often do you look in the mirror? How many times per day do you suppose that you look in the mirror? Let's count together, shall we? Uh, So perhaps for the first time when you get up in the morning and make your way into the bathroom, you might take a first glance in the mirror. That's one. Maybe a second look in the mirror would happen after you get out of the shower. That might be for you, unlike me, a blessed experience, but for me, it's always the most disconcerting uh, look in the mirror throughout the day because I think to myself, I trained for and ran a marathon, and this is what's there still. Um, (laughs) But that's two, right? 
And then perhaps you get another look in the mirror after you've gotten dressed. Maybe another look when you're combing your hair, getting your face ready, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe one last quick look as you head out the door. Now we're at, what, five looks or so. And then how many quick glances do you steal throughout the day at your reflection? For my part, I know every time I am walking past a storefront, I can't help but just steal a little glance. I'm walking along, minding my own business, and then, ooh, there's me in profile. <laughs> and again, I glance over, and I'm somewhat disconcerted that the profile is not as alluring as I had hoped, and I make my way, and then I find myself glancing again and again as though it's ever going to change throughout the day. Right? Of course, after lunch, you've got to do a quick teeth check in the mirror, Right? And then as you make your way home, it's getting dark earlier now, and so you find yourself in the kitchen, and you can see your reflection in the kitchen window, perhaps. Maybe you look again when you're getting changed for bedtime. Maybe one last look as you brush your teeth. So what is that? About a, maybe a dozen? A dozen times over the course of a day, that we check ourselves in the mirror. That feels about right for me. For you, perhaps it's slightly less. Congratulations, we're all impressed. For you, perhaps it's slightly more. Congratulations, we're all impressed for a different reason. What's your total count? Why do we look in the mirror so often at ourselves? Why are we so consumed with our appearance or how it is that we look to the world. Isn't it always about the same when you look in the mirror day after day after day? There aren't necessarily radical changes. And I think we know, perhaps somewhere deep down, that no one else is caring as much about our appearance as we are. And yet we return to it. We look over and over again. Why? Well, there is something in us that believes that if we can project our image just so, if we can curate our look in just the right manner, that we will then be free. We believe that if we can make ourselves appear in a way that curries the favor of the world, we will have for ourselves a sense of freedom, a feeling of freedom. That's why you feel like a million bucks after you buy that perfectly fitting shirt. That shirt that flatters, that shirt that you just love to wear. It gives you a little bit more bounce in your step, renders you a bit more confident as you leave the home. You feel a little bit of grief at the end of the day when you have to take that shirt off and throw it in the laundry and you pine for the moment when it cycles back through the laundry and comes back again. And you can experience again that feeling of confidence, that bounce in your step that comes from knowing, I look good. <laughs> we want to look good. We believe that projecting goodness gives us freedom. It makes us feel more free. And of course, we do this with far more than just our physical appearance. 
we check the mirror, as it were, of our personal or our personhood appearance just as often, perhaps even more, than we do our physical appearance. We want to make sure that we're holding the right worldview. We want to make sure that we're projecting the right kinds of human decency, that we have in our back pocket actually a resume of goodness that we could hold up to defend ourselves were anyone ever to accuse us of being a bad person. We really, really don't want to be thought of as a bad person. We want to be known as a good person. We want to know of ourselves that we are a good person, and so we are perpetually checking the mirror. We make mirrors our daily companions, mirrors not just of our physical appearance, but of our personhood appearance, always reassuring ourselves that we are right, that we are good, that we are decent. Mirrors, they actually remind us of what we think we need to feel free. You may have noticed that at your gym, no doubt, the walls are covered in mirrors. Why is that? Well, it's because the more attention we give to our image, the more we will strive to improve that image the more we will show up at that gym, the less we will cancel our membership. Mirrors, again, point us back, remind us of what we think we need in order to be free. Namely, to look good, to appear good, to appear beautiful even to the world. But what a tragedy it is that the very thing that we are always chasing in order to make us free, of course, winds up being the thing that actually enslaves us. We become enslaved to this notion of needing to appear good, needing to appear decent, needing to appear beautiful, both in our physical appearance and in our personhood. We are slaves to it. We are mirror junkies, in fact. We're addicted to looking good. And we're addicted to the feeling of freedom that looking good affords us. And some of us don't even know that. As I say that now, some of you are sitting there, that's news to you. It may seem like there's some vague connection to your soul or to your heart, but you're wondering if this might apply to someone else and not you. This is all of us. This is every one of us. We are addicted to the feeling of freedom that comes from believing that we look good, that we look decent, that we look like good people. Now, if you've been here with us over the past few weeks, you know that we've been studying through the book of James. James is a book in the New Testament that is written to Christians. It's actually a letter in the New Testament of the Bible that's written to Christians. James is writing to people who believe, people who had an experience of faith, who've come to know the Lord and trust God, but now they are routinely finding themselves drawn back into the wisdom of the world. These are people who have faith, 
but they find that they're constantly being sucked back into unbelief, sucked back into unfaith, falling back into the ways that the world finds value, that the world lives, the ways of the world. And last week we looked at the first half of chapter 1 of the book of James, wherein James is pressing these new Christians toward a kind of single-mindedness. Okay, he's saying no longer be double-minded Christians. No longer say in one minute, I trust God, and in the very next minute, fall back to trusting yourself. In one minute, being full of faith in the divine, and in the next minute, falling back to the ways of the world, which is to put faith in one's self, trusting yourself. James is calling Christians out of that double-minded pendulum swinging, He's saying, go all in, be single-minded, go all in on faith, put all of your confidence and trust in God, because in so doing, you discover the wholeness and fullness of life. When we actually lose confidence in ourselves and cast all of our confidence and trust onto the Lord, we experience that fullness and wholeness of life. And James is now building on that same theme in our text for today when he writes this, James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James says, don't put so much confidence in yourself. Don't put so much confidence in your own words, in your own speech, in your own thoughts, in your own ways. Actually lose confidence in yourself and place that confidence where in the word of God, in the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. He says, be slow to speak, be quick to listen. That's good advice in general, quick to listen to others, surely, as they can teach you something you do not know. The things that come out of your mouth are always only those things that you already know. There is no learning in speech, only in listening. So certainly listening to others, but James here primarily has in mind listening to God, letting the word of God sink down deep into you so that it might save your soul, so that your mind and way of thinking and way of speaking and way of being might be upset by the ways of God, might be turned over by the ways of God. He's saying lose confidence in yourself. Trust in yourself less. Trust in God more. He's calling these believers out of double-mindedness into single-minded trust of God, and he specifically zeroes in on one way in particular that we tend to trust ourselves, and that is in our anger. There is perhaps no greater moment of self-trust than when we let our anger run wild. How many of you are familiar with that feeling of righteous indignation? Is it just me? <laughs> we all get a hit of it 
when someone, say, cuts us off in the middle of traffic, or when we read a headline about that hated political figure who has misstepped yet again. And this outrage adrenaline pumps through our body. When that fires in you, when that righteous indignation, when that adrenaline pumps through you, all self-deprecating thoughts vanish. All thoughts of self-doubt vanish. What we are absolutely convinced of in that place of righteous indignation is our rightness. I am right. My thoughts can be trusted. My personhood is whole and good. And oh, that feels good, doesn't it? See, because that's our longing. That's the same impulse that compels us to check the mirror a dozen times a day or more. It's that deep abiding desire to be good, to be whole, to be beautiful. And in our righteous indignation, we are never so convinced of that. Now, in this place, finally, I am sitting in the place of rightness. I am judging the world wrong. If only those people out there could be as right as I am now, the world would be a better place. If only that person who cut me off, that jerk who cut me off, would live in this place of righteousness that I now live, the driving world would be a better place. If only those senators, those political leaders, would be as righteous as I am, the world would be rid of all its injustices. We kid ourselves. We deceive ourselves of our own wholeness, fullness, and rightness in our anger. In no other place, perhaps, is there more convincing of your own rightness than in that place of anger, that shot of outrage, adrenaline. It's like a drug. But James says that in that kind of anger, there's nothing righteous. He says that kind of anger leads not in the least to the righteousness of God. Not at all, he says, in our anger do we bring about anything that even resembles righteousness. It feels righteous, but it's just good old-fashioned vanity. It's just me feeling good about myself, that longing to be convinced that I have it all together, that I'm on the right side of things. I am scratching that itch. I am feeding that longing of my soul. It's like that great-looking shirt. Finally, I get that bounce in my step again. I get that feeling of superiority that I long for. James would invite us out of that false freedom, that vanity-driven false freedom freedom, that feeling of righteous freedom that is nothing of the sort. He says that true freedom, true life, actually comes from the exact opposite place. He mentions the word meekness. 
by which he refers to humility. A loss in the confidence of your own ability to judge things. A loss in the confidence of your own rightness, that you have the authority to sit in that place of rightness and judge the world. He says, a loss in self-trust, a rise in the trusting of God, trusting in the very word of God. And I can hear some of your minds cranking and you're saying within your internal machinations, your internal lawyer is saying, oh no, it's because I trust the word of God that I am so indignant, so righteously indignant about the injustices of the world. That's why I'm so outraged. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Ouch. James says that the word of God is not given to us in order to build a worldview with which we can sit in judgment over the world. That's not what it's for. The word of God is not so that we can think right thoughts about the world and pat ourselves on the back for it. That's not what it is. The word of God is not simply one more mirror to check your righteousness in, to preen in front of, to congratulate yourself that you hold the right views of the world. James is warning us that is not what the word of God is. It is not a contributor to your vanity project, to our false freedom, to make me feel good about my look, to make me feel as though I am in the right. James says, no, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. There's that mirror. You know why we look in the mirror so often throughout the day? It's because we can't hold the image of our right self in our mind. We can't quite remember it. And so we have to look again and again. We have to check again and again. We have to reassure ourselves again and again. I'm in the right, aren't I? I look good, don't I? This feeling of righteousness that I have, I have a basis for that in and of myself. Yes. And so we return like junkies, addicted to that feeling of freedom that comes from reassuring ourselves that we are in fact in the right. And James says, do not let the word of God become just another mirror to you. Just one more check of your goodness. Yep, I've got it going on today. I have the right again today to judge the world in my wholeness, decency, and glory. Those filthy people over there, if only they were more like me. Do you see what a dead end that is? What a dead end that kind of mirror checking is? That tasty savoring of our own righteousness? It's actually slavery to need to believe in your own goodness. 
It's slavery to need to believe in your own righteousness. It takes a hold of you and it grips you. It will have you back at that mirror incessantly. Still looking good, right? Still got everything in order, right? Still holding the right worldview, yes. Still have the right resume. James is inviting us into an entirely different sort of freedom. It's not a freedom based on the thrill of feeling righteous. It's not a freedom based on the euphoria of outrage. That's a false freedom. That's an enslaving false freedom. James is inviting us into a freedom from ourselves to be free from ourselves, not free in ourselves, not free because of ourselves, not free because we have proven our own worth or justified our own existence, not free on the basis of my decency and resume, a freedom from all of that. He's inviting us out of self-obsession, out of managing our appearance, our physical appearance, and our personhood appearance. He's inviting us into a radically different kind of freedom. He says the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is an astonishing flip from James. He turns the whole world on its head. James says that true freedom comes from what? The perfect law. True freedom comes from the perfect law. This is the inverse. This is the opposite of what we might expect. He actually calls it the law of liberty. What is that? That sounds like a non sequitur. The law of liberty, the law of freedom. James is saying freedom does not come from chasing your vanity. Freedom does not come from insisting that you are righteous or needing to feel as though you are righteous, from obsessing at the mirror over whether you are draped in the right fashions. No, true freedom comes from you no longer being your master. True freedom comes from submitting to the perfect master, from turning over the trust and confidence and reins of your life to the divine master, the perfect master, who gives us his instruction through his perfect law. This is so important. Freedom is not some abstract idea. It's not the idea that I'll feel good when I look good, that I'll feel righteous when I've carefully curated my appearance of righteousness. That's actually a terrible idea. That's a lie that winds up enslaving us. True freedom is, is in the doing of the word of God. That's what James is saying. He says, don't be hearers only, 
and so deceive yourselves. True freedom is in the doing of the word of God. True freedom is in obeying God. It's in giving up on curating your appearance to yourself or to others, giving up on feeling righteous, giving up on that drug of indignation, and it is a drug, it's the cleanest high you've ever felt in some ways, it's giving up on deceiving yourself into thinking you're one of the good guys. Give up on all of that and exchange it for humble obedience. God is never asking you to project your righteousness to the world. He's not interested in that project, actually. That whole project of checking yourself in the mirror, of reassuring yourself that you hold the right positions, that you sit in the right place, that you think the right thoughts, which is the close cousin to you have the right appearance, that you dress in the right way, That's not God's project. He's not interested in that agenda at all. That's our agenda, not his. He's not asking us to obsess over whether we're righteous. He's asking something very different of us. He's asking us to obey him. He's asking us to obey him. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me ask you, who are the orphans and widows? Who are the overlooked people in our world, in your circle of relationship? or circle of opportunity who would show up at your funeral and stand to their feet and say, this person cared for me. Not this person thought right thoughts about me so they could pat themselves on the back. No, no. This person visited me. This person may have thought wrong thoughts about me, but they cared for me. They visited me. They gave of their time. They gave of their life. They gave of their energy. And I was cared for through their actions. God is not interested in our righteous indignation about the injustices of the world. He's interested in our mercy. Will we be people of mercy? Will we be people who move toward the victims of those injustices? People who give of our lives to care for people who have been hurt and afflicted by the injustices of our world. It's not, will you feel mercy? And notice how lovely that mercy t-shirt looks on you. No, it's will you do mercy? Will you be engaged in the life of mercy? Will you pour yourself out in mercy? Will you do the work of a nobody? The overlooked, 
thankless work of love. The hard slog that no one sees. This is what God asks of you in his perfect law through his perfect word. We can spend our whole lives fighting to prove ourselves good. But what a colossal waste of time that turns out to be when we discover that the perfect master of all things is a God of mercy. God has no interest in whether you look good. He has no interest in whether you feel righteous. He doesn't care. He is inviting you out of that self-obsessed mirroring game. And he's inviting you into his life of mercy. He gives mercy to us. He doesn't call us to cover over our faults or to pretend that we are more righteous than we are or to project a face that's better than it is. He meets us in all of our faults, in all of our ugliness with his mercy. And he says, extend that same mercy to others. That's freedom. That's God's sort of freedom. The eccentric preacher Nadia Bowles Weber, she's a character, she writes this, My opinions feel good until I crash from the self-righteous sugar high, then realize I'm still sick and hungry for a taste of mercy. Our world doesn't need any more of our righteous indignation, and God is not asking it of us. Our world needs mercy, and God is giving it. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be people of mercy. Teach us to receive your mercy, that in the face of our brokenness, in the face of our unrighteousness, in our failures to follow you, in our failures to love. Teach us to receive your mercy. Father, rescue us from covering over the broken things about us. Make us people of mercy, people who receive it, people who give it, people who live in it and know the freedom of it. Teach us the life of your son, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.